All right, guys, well, go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going verse by verse through the book of Exodus. We've been doing this for a while, and we've been hitting these um, plagues. We're taking one week to look at each plague, and uh, it's been quite amazing so far already. We've seen the first two plagues. The first one was the water being turned into blood, and we saw the wonderful spiritual application of that is that um, God will judge uh, and the things that you love, that you get your life from, will be turned into death, except if you're in Christ, then the water gets turned into wine, which is new life, and that was a really great application for us. And then last week, we studied the frogs, the plague of frogs, which spoke of pride and the prideful, inflating attitude that Pharaoh and the Egyptians had towards God. They would not let God rule over them. And in fact, they said if they wanted God's grace, it was going to be tomorrow and not today. Uh, whereas we have in the New Testament, in Christ, we have the Spirit is always saying, today it is, is the day of salvation. If we would humble ourselves to allow Jesus to be our King today, we would find great blessing in Christ. And so we're kind of seeing in these Ten Commandments, and I did not know this before, but as we've been studying, I've been learning that the Ten, Commandments, or the ten Plagues show the difference between rebelling against God and the plagues that come against that, the curses, and the blessings that come in surrendering to God and God's grace through Jesus Christ alone. So it's been really amazing that we've seen that. But we can't really understand the Bible unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. And so we need to pray. We need to ask him now to come and, and fill us and, and bless us with understanding. Jesus, we thank you that you are all to us, uh, that our life is in you, that you are our life. Lord, we... we uh, Thank you for taking our old life and nailing it to the cross in your own body and giving us new life. Jesus, you are all that we need. I pray we would lay down everything that we want out of this life for your kingdom. Everything that we think we need, like safety and security and, and success. I pray we'd lay it all down at your feet, Jesus, because you are worthy of our whole lives. You are worthy of everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, as, I was, as I was praying, I just was reminded of something that happened to me yesterday. So I went to the, um, the gym to work out, uh, to go swimming, and I usually swim, and then I go into the sauna um, for like five minutes because I'm a wuss and I can't handle it. But while I was in there, there was a guy in there... Um, named Randall, who, who was, had very big muscles, lots of muscles. And I was like kind of intimidated, you know, like Jeremy has big muscles. I get intimidated by your muscles, Jeremy. But um, this guy was in the sauna, and we just started talking, and he asked me if my beard made me hot, and I was like, well, what do you think? <laughs> asked my wife, you know, I should have said that, that was a good. Uh, no, but it was funny. <laughs> and, uh, but we started talking, and instantly he started telling me about, he, he was in the military, and his best friend got killed, and he had to carry his body, and he doesn't, doesn't believe in God anymore because of that. And so I was able to share the gospel with him in the sauna. But the problem is he kept listening and wanting to hear more, and the sauna just kept getting hotter and hotter. And I was dying, guys. Like, I thought I was going to die. It, maybe it was the beard. Maybe, I don't know what, but it was like, I was like pleading to Jesus, Lord, please help him to either accept you right now or to not because I am going to die. I literally had no more strength. And I said, I have to open the door, bro. I got to open. And he's like, why? What's up? And he was like, he was so into it. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I was so, so hot. So I think I lost like so much. So I woke up in the middle of the night last night with this huge headache and I didn't drink enough water, I guess. But I don't know why that came to my mind, but I thought I would tell you all about my, my day yesterday. I felt like I was going to die sharing the gospel with someone. How about that? That was fun. <laughs> anyway, I love being in Christ because we have this new life that he offers. Um, and like I said, we've seen these two judgments already, or these two plagues, and we're going now into this third one. And what do you call um, lice that live on a bald man's head? Homeless. <laughs> so the... The, uh, the plague that we're going to look at today is lice. So let's go ahead and read our text, which is Exodus chapter 8, verse 16 through 19. I was going to have Jared, I don't know where Jared is, but I was going to have him play a trick on you guys. I was going to have him sit in the front row 
and have a hat on and then take it off and there'd just be a bunch of, of rice in his hair. And that would, have, that would have given you a visual illustration, but also it would have grossed everyone out. So, you're welcome that he didn't come today. <laughs> so, Exodus chapter 8, verse 16 is where we start. It says, so the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land. That word dust is extremely important. That it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So we've seen that these, uh, these magicians in Egypt have been able to uh, duplicate all of the plagues so far by their demonic powers that they have, and but this time they can't. It's like God would let them go a certain amount, uh, a, a certain length of time, believing in their power. But he's he's now done playing games with them, and he's saying, "No, you cannot uh, duplicate this." But they could not. So they were there were lice on men and lice on beasts. Then the magician said to Pharaoh. This is the finger of God. So even the magicians now are humbled before God and his great power. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. And we've studied about hardening of hearts and how that happens previously. So if you missed that, go back to the first study we did, and we talked about hardness of heart and who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Did he harden his heart? Did God harden his heart? And that whole discussion, we, we covered that thoroughly. And it was really exciting. But here we have the dust of the land becoming lice. The dust of the land becoming lice. The plague, this plague strikes at the heart of the religious system that they had established in Egypt. Okay? They had their own religions. They had their own temples. They had their own priests and their own rules of what their religion entailed. They even had their own deities. They had demons, maybe even Satan himself, that they would commune with and talk to. And so you have this whole religious system, and that's what this plague is attacking. And with all religious systems, except for the grace of Jesus that we believe in and that we follow, every other religious system is based on rules and laws. If you keep the rules, you will be accepted. Hi, guys. You keep the rules and you'll be accepted. That is what every religion is based on. Even our modern culture that denies religion, they have established their own religion that they don't like to call religion, but you must follow their rules still. It's still about performance keeping rules. We've all grown up with it. We understand what this is. And only the grace of Jesus Christ frees us from having to keep rules to be accepted. It's, it's amazing. This grace of Jesus is so much different than everything else in the world. Their religion in Egypt was a performance-based religion and let me tell you, you could be here today and you could be worshiping, uh, worshiping in a performance-based religion and you don't even know it. But here's some signs. Do you get tired? Do you get worn out or burnt out? Does reading the, is reading the Bible a burden to you? Those would be signs that you still have maybe parts of your heart or life that are still engaged in a performance-based religion instead of the true grace of Jesus Christ. When the grace of Jesus Christ frees you, when you realize his love for you is immeasurable and it's given freely, we have freedom. And, and reading the Bible is no longer a burden to us, but it's exciting because we're hearing the voice of our beloved God who speaks to us wonderful things in the word of how much he loves us and how much he has done for us. See, the grace of Jesus Christ is about what he does for us and never about what we do for him. 
And that is true freedom. It's not about what you do. But I've done so many bad things, I know. But I can't do all the good things I should do, I know. And that's why Jesus gives us his grace. He washes away our sin, and then he empowers us by simple relationship to live that godly life that we can't do on our own. Now, the rules in Egypt and their specific religion involved being very clean, very clean. They, in Egypt, hated bugs, okay? Especially lice. And if they had lice on bugs or bugs on them, on their bodies, they would be not able to serve their gods or to serve as priests or in their religious uh, duties. They would never be able to do that. Um, Nacho Libre just flashed in my head, sorry. Um, So if they had lice on them, they would not be able to keep the rules that they're supposed to keep, okay? They would not be able to live by their laws. So what would happen in Egypt is the priests would shave their entire bodies every other day so the lice didn't have anywhere to hang on to. Because there was lots of lice. A lot of the poor people carried lice back then. They, they found combs, uh, ancient Egypt combs, and they all have lice eggs in the combs still. They didn't find the residue of that, so it's pretty gross. So they, the priests, and you've seen the pictures of, of uh, Egyptian free priests in the, in the cartoons or whatever that you see of Egypt, and they all have those bald heads. You know, even their cats, they like the bald cats, which are so ugly, they're cute. You guys know those. So, when God brings this plague of lice, it deals a vicious blow to the religious system that the Egyptians are engaged with and that they're trusting in. Their works, they can't do. They have confidence in themselves that they can perform up to the standards of their own religion. They, They made up this religion, or they got it from a demon. Either way, if they had lice on them, it would, they would hate and abhor themselves. Isn't that crazy? They, they would be humiliated and frustrated. That's what this plague is doing in the hearts of the Egyptian people, especially the priests. And I want to tell you that such is the life of anyone stuck in performance-based religion. You end up hating yourself. Why? Because you never measure up. No matter what your standard is, you will never measure up. And so you have even modern liberal Christianity that, that keeps lowering the standards. They're still living, a, they're uh, worshiping in a performance-based religion, but they keep lowering the standards, saying this is the, now the standard, now this is the standard, now, well, if you just do this, but the problem is, it doesn't change the fact that you still hate yourself because you still your conscience bears witness that you're not good enough, that you fall below the standard that God has placed. Anyone stuck in performance-based religion is frustrated by failure, is disappointed by defeat, is that we, they never measure up and they're always underperforming. But so many people choose to live that life today. We ask questions like, well, how am I doing compared to you? Do you ever find yourself going on the street and say, at least I'm not that guy? You know, to the homeless person. Or we just compare so much. And that comparison at the root of it is I am performing according to these standards better than you. All comparison is pride. I am doing better than you. Or whoever we say. Or we say, look how hard I'm trying. Again, that's performance-based. Look how hard I am. Look at the effort I'm putting in to live a godly life. You're not even trying. And so we compare ourselves. You know who we usually compare ourselves to? Hitler. Right? At least I'm not Hitler. Ha! Like, that's the standard God has. There's Hitler who goes to hell, and everyone else is fine. Right? But that's not God's standard. 
God's standard is high and holy, and his standard is Jesus and everybody else. So unless you look like Jesus, 100% of the time, you don't measure up. And God knows that. But there's freedom from that in Christ. So you and I can be placed in Christ by faith, and then his life and obedience is given to us, and we walk around saying, I'm accepted by God like I'm Jesus. And that changes our hearts so much. But it's not performance that accomplishes that. It's not law-keeping that accomplishes that. We So many choose this life of performance-based religion today. They say, how hard am I trying? How well am I doing compared to you? Or they think, God wants my best. Am I giving enough? Am I giving my best? Uh, do, do I dress right? Sometimes I wear a suit and tie, right, guys? I'm not going to today because it was hot. And I sweat a lot when I lead worship. So sometimes I wear a suit and tie. Sometimes I wear shorts. I don't care. I'm free. But some people say, well, God deserves your best. I want to ask you guys, does God deserve your best? That is a bad question to ask. That is the wrong question to ask. Does he deserve it? Well, yeah. But the problem is your best is awful. The Bible says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. I'm sorry, Aria, it's true. <laughs> our righteousness is like dirty diapers. Maybe that's her problem. Who knows? All righteousness, that means your best doesn't do anything with God. He's like, what are you doing giving me your best? Your be- I don't care if you dress in a tie. I don't care if you... The outward looks like you're following me. It's the heart. And only being in Christ can we please God. That's what he's looking for. That's the best that he's looking for is do you have faith in my son? Because he was awesome. He was so awesome, I ripped open heaven twice just to tell people what I thought of him. This is my beloved son and him I'm well pleased. Okay, so we can't please God. By giving our best. But then some people go to the other extreme and they just disregard all rules and all laws and they just say, no one can tell me how to dress, how to speak, how to live. Which is not actually getting away from rules like they think they're doing. They're actually just making up their own rules. So it's still legalistic, but they've just made up their own rules and standards and say, I can dress however I want because I'm the rule maker. Both are rebellion against God's way. If you try to keep the rules and be legalistic and dress all nice and, and look nice on the outside, you're, you're rebelling against God's way, which is trust in Jesus Christ alone. And if you break all the rules and you say, I don't care about the rules and I'll do whatever I want, that also is rebelling against Jesus Christ, who says, faith in Christ is the only way to go. And that will produce righteousness. Well, people are all over the place into this law-keeping religion. And the lice made out of dust is going to help us understand what God thinks of that and how our response should be. This plague is God's way of showing them that they cannot keep any set of rules. They have the lice on them. You can't keep even your religion, even your religion. Nonetheless, my my religion, the truth, you can't even keep your own religion. They're completely corrupt from the heart God is teaching them. And so they will always end up rebelling against any rule set. No matter how hard they try, they are cursed is the problem. Whether they're on this side, in the legalistic side, saying law-keeping is where I find my righteousness, or on this side, the law-breaking side, where you make your own law and say, I can do whatever I want. Both sides, he says, are still under the curse. The curse. They can't be right before God. They can't be in God's presence. Notice that the curse you remember in the book of Genesis? This curse here of the, of the lice, this plague, is on the dust. But if you would recall in Genesis, the dust was related to the curse that God made upon all men. Here the dust becomes the lice, so the lice weren't really the plague. The plague was that the dust became lice. Well, dust speaks of the curse on sin, Okay? Why were these people religious anyway? 
They didn't have to have a religion. What was inside them that was driving them to start a religion with pyramids and temples and priests and shaving? Why were they religious anyway? Because all men have a problem. We die. We die. And so everyone is religious. Everyone has to deal with that problem. And that problem of death is a direct result of the sin in the garden when he said, well, we'll get there in just a minute. They were doing what they could, these Egyptians, to try and work out a solution for sin before they died. They were doing their best. They had priests, they had afterlife, they had views and, and all kinds of plans. You guys know what they would do in their, in their sarcophaguses, sarcophagi. I don't know if that's the plural of whatever. They would, they would put all these things to carry with them to the afterlife because they thought maybe if we have these things, that's our plan. Hey, at least we have a plan. At least we got a plan. But here, God throws a wrench in their plans and he's teaching us all that religion and performance is the not the right way to deal with the curse. In Genesis 3, he said to Adam, because you have heard the, heeded the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground or the dust for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. But, and you shall eat the herb of the field, and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground from which you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Death was the curse. Sin brought death. Death is represented by dust. Isn't that crazy? The curse is represented by dust. The choice to disobey God is sin. That's what sin is. You could, anytime you want to rebel, do your own thing, that's what sin is. And it had terrible consequences. He said, dust you are. Death is the worst part of the curse. Yes, there's thorns and there's childbirth and all that stuff, but all of it pales in comparison to death. We were at your, your mom's funeral the other day. Is it okay if I mention what your sister talked about? Okay, so... Cindy's sister um, is a Buddhist, I guess. Is she? She's full-on Buddhist. And she gets up there and she's talking about, about your mom and, and uh, she passed away. And in her speech, she gave the, the pillars of Buddhism, which is that, that people die and we have to deal with it. And, and things happen and we just have to deal with it. And I was like, that is so sad. What do you mean we just deal with it? That is the Buddhist solution to the problem of the curse of death. Just deal with it. Just deal with it. And, and today the reputation of Buddhists is that they're like some higher level of Zen and, and they have answers and they have no answers. Literally the pillars of, it, of, of this religion is we don't have any answers, just be happy even though we die. And even though our friends die, we just have to be happy. And even though our neighbors die, we just have to be happy. And it's completely resigning to Satan wins. What do you mean? Jesus is like, no, I have conquered death. I have beaten it. I have given you a solution. In me is life. And, 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 and there was just so sad to see this resigning to the fact that the dis death happens and we just have to deal with it. And I was like, no, you don't have to deal with it. You don't have to be okay with it. You can be sad. You can be upset. You can say, this is wrong that we die. What's the solution? Jesus is the solution. We're going to see that come to full pass later in our study today. So I was just, thank you for letting me share that. And it was thank you for even inviting me to go to that funeral. But it was great because you shared the truth when you stood and spoke, and good job. That's right, Jesus. Okay, so sin always leads to death. That never changes. Every person in this world, guess what the mortality rate is? 100% 
in our world, we all die. It's one of the greatest testimonies to the truth of the word of God. And that never changes. It's declared by God. He can't lie. Sin brings death. So, this death is the only stop on the train that we're riding. And we all got on this train in the Garden of Eden. And you and I must die for our sin. We're cursed. We are cursed. Like this dust is cursed, turned into lice, showing people their religion, their efforts will fail. And it will not overcome this curse. You and I are in the same situation. The lice is on us. But Jesus. I love being able to say that. But Jesus. Jesus has a different way of dealing with the curse. See, the Egyptians, they could just try harder. They could just shave their body more. They could go to the store and buy the, what's it called? Right, right, right. What's the shampoo for lice? Rit. They could, huh? Rid, yeah, whatever. They could buy, they could do the shampoo. They could do these efforts, but it is never going to get rid of this curse because can you imagine how much dust was in Egypt? And the billions and trillions of lice, I picture these lice just covering everything. You open your mouth and they're just like, ah, and they're up your nose and they're in your ears and in your eyes and just, oh, awful, right? This is how the curse is. We can't get away from it. But Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I want you guys to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. We're going to see how Jesus deals with this curse in a completely different way than performance-based religion. Performance-based religion. Our efforts to keep the law. Our rejection of God's law and making our own law still performance-based. Whatever our performance is, God has a different way, altogether separate, of dealing with the curse and, is, and let's see it in John chapter 8. Now, early in the morning, verse 2, he again came into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees, who are these guys? Scribes and Pharisees. They are the great law keepers. They are the law givers. They are the guys who try really, really hard to perform the law and the rules. That's these guys. I, this, is, this is extremely important for us to understand who the audience is here. Jesus is teaching the people, but the scribes and the Pharisees are there, and then they bring to him a woman caught in adultery. So the scribes and the Pharisees are going to be like the priests in Egypt. Those priests in Egypt had their way of, of religion and performance, shaving everything, doing all their works. Here we have the scribes and the Pharisees. They had their version of keeping the rules as well. They're the same thing, okay? Now look, they brought to him a woman caught in adultery. She breaks the worst rule. She's a rule breaker also. And they, when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, what's their, what's their whole thing? Law. He, they're referring to this. They're asking Jesus, are you a law guy too? Are you a lawyer too? Do you, are you on our side here? Or are you on the other side, like the people who break the law? Look at this, look at this. They, Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. The law says death is the penalty, right? But what do you say? And they said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and look at this. He wrote on the what? On the ground with his finger. He takes his finger and he writes on the ground as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the, first, the stone first. And again, he stooped down. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning from the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus raised himself up, look at those words, 
and he saw no one but the woman, look at those words, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. The, this parable parallels what we're seeing with this plague of lice in one of the most amazing ways I've ever seen. The scribes and Pharisees were great at keeping the law. They were almost perfect at keeping the law. In fact, they were so good at keeping the law that when Jesus came, he had to, first he had to do a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And in that Sermon on the Mount, his first job, his first thing he needed to accomplish, his first teaching, was showing people that the law was not simply external keeping of rules like the scribes and Pharisees thought, but it was about the heart. He said, you have heard it said to you. Who said to them? You shall not murder. The scribes and Pharisees said that. He said, you've heard it said to you, do not murder. But I say to you, even if you hate someone, you've committed the same crime because the external action of murder is not only what the law governs, but it's the internal heart as well. So Jesus came on the scene. He explained that the inside was the problem. The scribes and Pharisees looked great on the outside. They were the legalistic people who kept the rules. The Egyptians were legalistic people who kept their rules. And Jesus comes along the scene and he blows both of them out of the water. Ha, lice, how do you like that? You can't keep your rules anymore. And here, let me just show you your lice. It's on the inside. You can't get rid of them. You are evil in your hearts. You break all the rules in your hearts. That's what Jesus said. And you guys know, if you studied the word of God, you know he was doing that. So they bring this girl who was guilty of adultery, breaking a rule, a really big rule. It was a sin. It was a bad sin. And the penalty that they bring up for her, of stoning her, was right. I was, Dane and I were listening to Deuteronomy last night in bed, and we, we came across that. If someone uh, has sex with someone outside of marriage. The penalty was you to bring him to the gate of the city and everyone throws stones at her. First her dad first and then everyone it says can join in the fun. Literally what it said. Ah, so the penalty for stoning was the absolute correct death by stoning. Now the scribes and the Pharisees are so quick to bring up the law and its punishments. Why? Because that's their whole world is law. And the punishments of the law, they think the punishment is the motivation for other people to, to keep the law. You should be like us because you don't want to get punished like this woman. And they have every right in their performance-based religion to act this way. They're actually doing what's right in their religion. But Jesus is coming along the scene saying, there is a different way to deal with the curse and sin. Your way is punishment. Jesus' way is different. We're going to get to that. This is always what the law says. Punishment for sin. Punishment for sin. And the law is right to say that. But they're asking Jesus, what are you going to do about it, Jesus? See, something about Jesus and, the, and their relationship so far has led them to believe that Jesus doesn't do things the same way that the law does. And that to them is extremely offensive because again, their whole world is this law. And so they're like, Jesus, what are you gonna do about this? He's got two options. Is he gonna kill this wicked sinner? Option number one, which would make them feel good about themselves and it would validate their law-keeping performance-based religion as being the right way to go. Or is he going to let her go and prove that he doesn't care about the law? He doesn't care about what's right and wrong, wrong, and thus he is not God. Because God does care about what's right and what's wrong. Those are his two options. They have him backed into a corner. So what does Jesus do? He's caught in this trap? Or so they thought. It says here that Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground, as though he did not hear. 
It's like he's saying, I'm going to give you guys a minute to rethink this strategy, boys. So he reaches down, he takes his finger, and he points. And he just kind of rubs his finger around, pointing. And what's he pointing to? The dirt, the dust. And Jesus, as he's bending down, he's taking his finger, he's pointing, and he's saying, I'm going to give you guys a hint at what you should be thinking about right now. As I just let you talk about your performance, all your law stuff, I'm going to take my finger and I'm going to point to what you really should be thinking about. He's literally pointing to the dust, which should have reminded them about the curse of sin and how they were cursed just as much as she was. They were under the same curse she was. They had broken the same rule she had broken. Where's the guy? Where's the dude? It says she was caught in the very act. Where's the guy? He was one of them. I'm sure of it. Hey, let's set up this trap and then we'll just, you know, we'll take care of you, buddy. But you go get her. You have some adultery with her. They were wicked in their hearts. They were under the same curse. And Jesus, he knows. And he's reminding them as he's taking his finger and pointing them to the dust. Saying, remember the curse that you're going to die? Hey, where are you going? Ha ha, death. That's what's coming to you guys. All of you are under the curse. Remember the curse. So they continued asking him. And then he raised himself up and he, he, he said, He who's without sin among you, let him so throw the stone at her first. And, and then he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. And those who heard it were convicted by their consciences, it says, and they went out one by one, beginning to the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone with her standing in the midst. So Jesus successfully gets to the heart of the issue. Even though they were trying their best to obey all the rules, they all knew that they had failed in their conscience. Even if they couldn't literally think of a time where they had broken the law, their conscience inside bore witness you are a sinner too. Even though they all tried their best, they knew they'd fail. So they knew they couldn't carry out this punishment on this woman. They realized that they were under the curse too. So they just abandoned her to her fate. God is going to have to take care of it. But Jesus doesn't leave, he stays. He stays. And he continues contemplating the dust. He continues looking at the, the curse. He continues maybe even formulating this plan, maybe reminiscing on how he is going to deal with this curse in a different way than just performance or non-performance or whatever you have. What is Jesus going to do? Is he going to kill her and ignore, or is he going to ignore the wrong and cease to be God? Well, he comes up with a different plan. Look what he says. He says, when Jesus had raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He raised himself up, and I believe fully, that that is speaking about his resurrection. He has this plan, he deals with the sin, and that makes him think of the resurrection. And as he raises himself up, Jesus makes this sacrifice for our sins. He dies on the cross. He takes the curse upon himself, in himself. He's killed on the cross, the curse is done away with, and when he rises himself up, what does he see? A woman. A bride. His bride. That now is the church. No condemnation in the church. Freedom. That's how he deals 
with the curse. Jesus contemplates the curse. He points at it, and then he does something about it. He sacrifices his own life on the cross, being killed as our substitute, and he raises himself up from the dead. He doesn't kill us, and he doesn't ignore our sins. How about that for getting out of this trap? Jesus, by the gospel, by what he does on the cross, he can punish sin and be merciful to sinners all at the same time. He gives us life by paying for our sins for us. He saw no one but the woman, it says. And this is such an awesome picture of the gospel where This woman is the church, and Jesus deals with the church. He loves the church. He focuses on his bride. It's all he can see. He's just so, from the resurrection of Christ until today, his focus has been on his bride, the church. Those who come to believe in him and put their trust in him. And it's so beautiful what he does for them. He shows her freedom through grace. The law only accuses The law only condemns, but not after we've been saved by Jesus Christ. When we come to believe in Jesus, that he's died on the cross for our sins, we surrender to him, we are free from anything the law can say. And we're enabled also to go and sin no more. Look what he says, neither do I condemn you like the law condemns you. You're free from that and go and sin no more. You are now equipped and enabled to sin no more, to have victory over sin. Does that mean you live a sinless life for the rest of your life? No, but it means you're not dominated by sin anymore, that you are not comfortable living in sin anymore. You will repent and confess and return to the Lord when you do mess up in sin. That shows you're a true believer. Look, at the gospel is right here. So awesome. It is grace And the gospel of grace that sets people free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. The penalty of sin and the power of sin. And Jesus gives that grace to all who humbly trust in him. The Pharisees, the Egyptians, and many in our day, All trust in their performance according to the law. How well am I doing? I'm trying harder than you. I'm trying harder than that religion. I'm doing better than these people. I'm not doing better than those people. But yet at the cross, we're all equal and we all are just sinners. And the only thing that matters is we're adulteresses standing before Jesus. But he finds a way to save us. When we will, instead of putting our trust in ourselves and our law-keeping, If we put our trust in what he does on the cross, he says, I don't condemn you and go and sin no more. We have new life. It is awesome. No matter what anyone tries, no matter what performance they accomplish, it won't ever work. We have to live by faith. Would you turn with me now to Galatians chapter 3? We see a couple more things. We're almost done. You guys are hanging in tough. I know it's warm in here. You're doing great. (laughs) Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. You'll be blessed by this. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith. But the man who does them, these laws, shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on this tree. And you might be thinking, what was this other way that Jesus figured out other than killing us or just letting us go? And the answer is here, he became the curse for us. He became the curse for us. Scribes and Pharisees were so good at keeping the law, but they were not good enough. They were so concerned about keeping the law, but it never brought them life. The Egyptians were so committed to their laws and to their gods, but none of their law keeping could ever get rid of the curse either. They still died. So Jesus in his love and grace, 
He becomes the curse for us. He bears the curse in himself for us. He has redeemed us, it says here, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Jesus offers another way besides performance. He demands another way, and the other way is called faith. He said here, the law is not of faith. It's not according to faith. The law, you don't have to have any faith to try to keep the rules. Yet how many churches teach that you're a better Christian if you keep the rules? And that is literally not Christianity. The Bible says faith, trusting him, is the other way that is not like law-keeping. And when we choose faith, he forgives us of our law-breaking and he enables us to live with the law inscribed on our hearts, we just want, naturally want to do the law because it's our new nature, because we have a new heart, the Holy Spirit given to us when we enter in by faith. It is a new way, foreign to the way of these Egyptians and to the scribes and Pharisees. It's a new way. And maybe it's foreign even to you today. Just letting go and trusting Jesus. We all need that more. There are areas of our life where we're still living in this performance base and it's just a curse to us. We still experience death in our lives in those areas where we are trusting in our works. And the Lord is drawing us towards faith alone because that's where his grace is given to the faithful. Faith in what? We say the word faith, but faith in what? Faith in the cross. What Jesus did on the cross, that he took our sins upon himself. He even gave us clues as to what was happening while he was on the cross. Did you know that? Rabbis in that day were very smart, and they demanded their students pay attention to what they said. So they would walk around, and they would say things, and they would expect, maybe even under their breath, they would say something, and they would expect their students, all their rablets, to... to uh, be following them, you know, and they would be expecting them to be listening to the words that they would say. And one strategy of the rabbis then was that they would say the first couple words, maybe the first sentence of a psalm, and they would expect their little followers to go and look up that psalm to get the full context of what the rabbi was teaching at that moment. So he had given little homework assignments. And wouldn't you know, that's exactly what Jesus does for us when he's on the cross. We are disciples of Christ. And when he's on the cross, he's hanging there and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And people are like, what is he trying to say? What is this? Has God turned his back on him? What is going on? Why is he saying this? But his disciples after the fact, we're like, wait a second. Maybe he was doing his rabbi Jedi mind trick and he wanted us to go back and look at where that's at in the Old Testament. And wouldn't you know that Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right. So we're going to go back real quick. And we're just going to read the first few verses of that chapter and we're going to see what is going on on the cross, Jesus himself telling us, and this is the last thing we're going to look at today, what is Jesus trying to tell us when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think you're going to be amazed because it has to do with this plague of lice from the dust. Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And yes, this is a messianic psalm, which means this is a psalm prophesying about Jesus this is the very heart of Jesus written a thousand years before he came so that we would know the heart. He says, Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry in the daytime and you do not hear and in the night season and am not silent, but you are holy and thrown in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. 
But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And as the disciples went back the next day or the next week or the next month and read this chapter, they would have been like, wait a second, I saw that happen. He said, my God, my God, and all the people were like, if he believes in God, why doesn't God rescue him? And that's even written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the disciples were like, wait a second, this is what was happening on the cross. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust in my mother's breasts, and I was cast upon you from birth. My mother's womb, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none who help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Bashan is a word for a demonic kingdom. He's talking about demons even being around him, mocking him, these strong bulls. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. Look at this. You have brought me to the dust of death. The dust of death. Many dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Any doubt of who he's talking about now? They, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. What I'm saying here is Jesus was turned into the dust of death for us on the cross. He was turned into the curse. He became the curse that we deserve. And he offers total freedom through faith in his life. He says, trust me, call upon me, and I will save you. You will not have to face the, the, the disobedience according to the law. And you will be enabled to live a godly life if you put your hope in me alone. So my question to you, do you want it? That's where an amen is very appropriate. Amen. Are you going to take him at his word? And are you going to follow him? Are you going to be his disciple? Looking in faith, not a disciple of his work, uh, his laws. Are you going to be a disciple of Jesus himself? It's not just a new set of rules that Christianity is. It's living in Jesus and Jesus living in you every day. And we do that by abiding in his word. You're, you would see it, you would feel it, you would know it if you abide in his word. It's crazy. Abiding in his word does not mean we pick it up and we have a 30-minute timer and we have a rule that we have to be in his word for 30 minutes every day. It means that his word is our life. It is our food we eat, it is our bread, it is our breath that we breathe. That's what abiding is. And it's so easy to abide. Because it's not work, it's life based on faith, not in myself, but in him.